Artscape is produced on the traditional Coast Salish territories of the Songhees, Lekwungen-speaking peoples, and the Wasanich, Sanchautan-speaking peoples. Artscape is a production of CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria and is made possible with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. Now in its third season, Artscape seeks to investigate the diverse arts and cultural landscape around us. This episode is produced by myself, Ray Spoon. I want to explore how musicians start recording their music. I'm a recording artist and I also run a local label called Coax Records. I put out music from bands from all over Canada. I started Coax because I wanted to make more space in the music industry for groups that don't usually get space, as well as build community between bands that have anti-oppression politics as part of their music. I want people who hear artists on the label to feel like they can record music as well if they want to. That's what this podcast is about. I'm going to interview some of the artists from my label and find out how they started recording music. The very first time I recorded my music, I was 13 years old. I had been writing songs for about a year. Mostly they were Christian contemporary songs, because I was raised in the Pentecostal church, and that was the music I had mostly heard. I was in a youth group at church that met on Friday nights. Being shy, I was usually very quiet. I hadn't made any friends there, really, just like school. But after one of the youth leaders encouraged me to ring my guitar, I had played one of my songs for some of the other teenagers there. It was like magic. I was in a room off the main room, and a bunch of them said they wanted to hear the song. I sang a bit shakily, but I noticed by the end of the song, their eyes had changed to be a bit warmer, and they all clapped. I went home and wondered about how I could make people like my song again. Then I remembered that the double tape player I had had a microphone in it. I hauled it up to my room, closed my door, and sat on the floor cross-legged holding my guitar with the tape player in front of me. Then I pressed the record and play buttons at the same time. It was easier to play my song to the tape player than a room of people. When I finished, I stopped the machine and listened to it back. It didn't sound like a CD when I played it back, but it was still my song. A high came over me. I could record my songs. So I pressed play and record again, and recorded another song, and then another, until I had 10 of them on the tape. I listened back to them. Then I grabbed another tape, put it in the other tape compartment, and dubbed a copy. I wrote the titles of the songs on the inside of the case, and took the copy to youth group the next Friday. I gave it to my youth leader, Carla. By the next week, I had a bunch of other youth groupers requesting copies of the tape, so I dubbed four more. I loved having a way to share my music without people having to actually look at me. Later on, after I'd given up on being Christian, I got a four-track recorder and made tapes for the other smoke door kids at my high school. With the four-track, I was able to record more instruments and separate the vocal and guitar tracks. I found an old digital effects box to add reverbs and echoes to the tracks as well. The song you're hearing in the background now is one I recorded when I was 15 on my four-track recorder. I couldn't find any of my very, very first recordings. I loved making recordings on the tape machines, but cassette recordings had a hiss to them and sounded a lot different than the music did live. I moved to Vancouver when I was 19 and started recording in a friend of a friend's home studio. 
He had a program in his computer, so the recordings were made digitally instead of onto cassette. The difference was so big for me. We recorded five of my songs, one of which you can hear playing in the background here. The five songs made up my CD EP called Honking at Minivans that came out in the year 2001. Everyone else who played on the album was a friend of the person who owned the studio and I paid the money to be on it. Essentially they were all studio musicians. The finished CD was such better quality when it came out and it ended up being played on the radio and sold at shows and festivals I played at that year. Now there were strangers who were hearing my songs. It made me feel a lot more nervous about recording, and I started to lose faith in my ability to record. So I accessed studios with engineers, or home studios of recording engineers. I enjoyed the process of recording my albums, but I was cut off from the technical recording side of things. Since I wasn't going to record my music anymore, I put all my energy into playing guitar and singing and eventually banjo when I started making country music records like this. It made me feel like there was a way I could control the quality of the recordings without actually ever having to press the record button. This is a song called All Washed Up off of my very first full-length record. Eventually I did get tired of just singing and playing guitar and banjo. I thought there was a lot more to music than that. I think I started to miss the creative control of recording my own music. When I started exploring electronic music, I got my first computer. I'd just moved to Germany and had met people who were making it. A lot of electronic music is about how you make the sounds. And suddenly I was back, where I started, with a lot more control of how I recorded things. I have slowly built my recording skills to the point where I can record my own music again, but at a better quality. Each album I made, I brought in more and more of my own tracks than I made. Every year I acquired a few more pieces of equipment I thought I needed to become better at recording, microphones, microphone preamps, effects boxes, sound cards, speakers, instruments. The most recent recording I've made is a collaboration with Seattle musician Clyde Peterson from the band Your Heart Breaks. Clyde and I have known each other for a long time and have collaborated on several projects. I recorded my tracks for the album on my own equipment at home in Victoria without accessing a bigger studio. I found myself in the same position making this album as I did all those years ago. I was completely in charge. I still record music for the same reason as I did when I was 13. It's so great to be able to send songs out to places I can't physically go. The idea of writing a song and then having someone I don't know listen to it gives me a thrill. I also love listening to other people's music and thinking about how much they can communicate without us ever having met. This is a song off of Clyde Peterson and I's album, My Side of the Mountain, called Where Two Rivers Meet.
I think recording music is so important and that anyone can start out with a mini recorder or a tape recorder and then build from there to releasing albums. I'm really curious about how some of the artists on Coke's records started out recording. So I'm going to interview them and find out how they got from starting recording to the albums that they're releasing now and how it's different for them. My first guest is Jenny Mitchell from the musical project Bird City, a Guelph-based musician who's been in many bands and is a fixture in the Canadian music scene. Coke's Records released her fantastic new album, Winnowing, in October 2017. I met up in Guelph with Jenny at Hillside Festival, where we were both playing. This is a song off of Bird City's album, Winnowing, called It Fell. If out of grey comes white And out of day comes night Out of dark comes light Falling down my steps Are the little green that's left To greet me through my window Before the great big winds blow One thing left till they go Out into the white Buried far from sight Gone until next year all under here Just buried, they'll be well enough With the other ones that fell I watched them all last night Get buried far from sight I turned out all the lights Out of grey came white We're looking for somewhere quiet, so later on today we both have to get someone to search our body for ticks. This is pretty good actually. 
Yeah, it's not it's that bad. Not tall grass. So no, we're not. Is this comfortable just standing here? I, like it. I think it's good. It's a bit strange. I think there's some sort of animal over there. This is a bizarrely preserved path for somewhere that doesn't seem to go anywhere, though. I know. Well, it looks like a circle. It's like just a circle that goes over to that spot. Do you want to keep walking on the path? If you'd like to. Okay, let's go. Basically what the show is about is about releasing music and starting with what's the very first recording you made okay. and what format and what do you remember about it? Okay, well the first uh, recording recording would be I used to make these cassettes when I was in high school where um, I would read like, you know, quotes from like Kurt Vonnegut or something and play weird samples of things in the background you know when you have like two cassette players that both have record on them and you just keep going back and forth like playing the background of all of the tracks and then recording on the other one and just reading like yeah weird like hippie quotes there's a frog going by it's exciting sorry but the first recording that got released like a recording um, was my band the Barmitzer Brothers and the album was called the night of the party and Jordy who is in the band he was I think I was 15, I turned 16, I think, while we were making that album. So Jordy would have been 14. Uh, Johnny would have been 12, I think, turning 13 when the band was recording that album. And my best buddy, Jillian Manford, was on that album too. And um, Jordy's brother's girlfriend recorded most of it at Jordy's dad's studio. So one of those awesome times where you get to record for free. It was really great because it's so super weird and um, we played everything ourselves and there's even a track near the end where we left in like a really big flub because we were so far through the song or like the rest of the song was good. Yeah, it's a, it, I hold it very dear because I feel like it got away in a really good way without us overthinking it or even knowing how to do that. I think that's why that album's so special to me because I feel like um, I ended up dating a really reputable, incredible producer, Andy McGuffin, for like 10 years and we had two kids together and he made some of the best albums I've ever heard. And so there was kind of a while where I feel like I couldn't make a really naive sounding recording anymore because it just wasn't possible. What's changed for you? Like you've been recording for a while now. You have a record coming out now and how's, yeah. that, how's that different? Um, well, I will say part of the sentimentality for me around hard copies is growing up in a thrift store because uh, to me there's a romance even in the unsold albums and where they end up like years down the line like it feels like when you make something physical and you put it out there you can't take it back so when somebody finds you years later in like a two dollar bin that's just like how much more that extension of the absurd is still going. I have two kids and it's not like my kids are one day gonna be up in my attic and discover my digital downloads. They can't discover something that was only ever floating in the internet, but they can definitely find my like 300 unsold copies of the albums I made for them. <laughs> so there's something I think all along, I felt like worst case scenario if I sold no albums, I could donate them to weird stores, I could put them in parks, I could leave them in boxes for my kids to discover when they find out I was a musician one day. Like there's so many moments to me that are very romantic that are wrapped up in kind of the forgotten albums. So I don't think that I can 
stop making physical copies of the albums I care about. I still make like recordings or go on compilations or make kind of stuff that it's fun to release quickly to the digital world. But I think if I've poured over an album and put a lot of time and heart into those songs, I want something physical to commemorate that process. And I don't know if I think enough about what happens after. Um, I've had some pretty rad schemes though. Like the one album, I Kickstarter funded it, so I had to make a thousand copies, and it was a triple gatefold cross Canada board game album. Oh, yes. And the thing is, is when you have a thousand of anything, it's a lot of things. They're still stored in friends' houses and everything, but I went on a tour where I pretended um, that I was gonna bring them to record stores to put them on consignment. And wherever possible, I tried to get a bit of money from the record stores for advanced sales or whatever. But mostly my scheme was just, if I drop these in record stores across the country, even if I never go back, then all of a sudden all of the coolest record stores have my album for sale so people all across the country can find. So I figured, like, I love indie record stores, Maybe I'm not planning to ever go back and get my return. You know, I think Victoria took one copy. I was like, I hope you made $25, Victoria, because I kind of have like this sort of DIY schemes that I carry out if I'm concerned about um, ending up with too much of the product. But uh, but yeah, I think my heart is in more in DIY in a lot of cases than it is in like um, sort of a professional arc of planning. Bird City is a weird one because I've only ever really made projects where I started them when I was young and then had time to build them and they kind of got to, like one would sort of pay for the next one. So um, I didn't always have a giant budget, but every time I'd maybe have a little bit more of a budget to put in. So like the first album that was Farmers and Brothers, we sold to pay for the second album's recording. And then the second album, we sold lots more of it and helped pay for the third recording. Bird City is simultaneously like, some of my oldest songs total, like some of them go back to when I was a young teenager, but the project itself has never had that sort of first freebie. And I'm a mom now of two kids, and so there's this constant battle, this internal struggle of um, anytime I have money and could book another studio date, is that also groceries, or is my kids like, you know, need dental work? So, um, Sometimes I think the future of Bird City is far more, um, in some ways I feel like it has a way better potential than any other project in terms of possibly more types of people connecting with it. And I certainly put more time and heart into that recording, like three years of working on a record. And that's not just because of budget, it was because of like the process. I really wanted it to be really special and really important every time I went in there. So if I needed to take breaks, for any number of reasons in my life. I never wanted to capture any of the songs during those times. And so I feel like I've made a recording that's going to be much, um, a much stronger connection if people can hear that in there the way that I put it in there. But at the same time, I'm just so completely aware of how much of a, a total gamble it is. Like I maybe will be playing Hillside next year or I maybe won't be. Um, maybe I'll be playing a really big set at Hillside or maybe I'll like, be on a tiny little egg and I don't know I never know well and that was my um, draw to your label as well is like um, I have label fantastic which I'm doing air quotes with to radio which in podcasting you can't see air quotes but it was the same thing I had a bunch of buds like wax mannequin Richard Laviolette who are just like 
incredible at being independent and kind of doing things on their own and I just kept discovering band after band that didn't have a traditional label or the labels were different from time to time and they were just putting out amazing albums anyway and so same thing I was like we can call it a label no money changes hands at all in this case it was just an umbrella over a bunch of people who are going to do amazing things anyway but it's like a strength in numbers and you get to sort of feel like you're not just figuring all that stuff out for yourself and doing yeah. it only for yourself, you know? You're driving to Sa- Sappy Fest in the Golden yeah. Bus, right? Yeah. That's kind of the beginning of the Bird City trajectory. Yep, that's true. So the Golden Bus is a 40-foot ex-transit bus. Um, it has a really big elaborate story involving a ghost, but uh, that would take up the entire podcast. So it's uh, registered as a motorhome. It has um, benches that turn into beds and that kind of thing, so people can kind of like live on it for small amounts of time, but we also present concerts. And um, the appeal for me was I, I grew up in Guelph. My dad's thrift store used to have concerts, and I saw some of the neatest and weirdest bands of my life play in that setting. And for reasons beyond our control, the store got taken away from us when the city had other plans for the property. And so many of my favorite spaces have been removed because, um, you know, the bottom line changes. Somebody other than you ultimately has the final say. And so we lose, like, so many cool spaces um, for reasons that none of us could have foreseen and that just happened. So I just really, really wanted to make a space that I had complete control over complete autonomy and that was literally mobile so that if you know I'm in one neighborhood and that neighborhood starts to turn into something else I can literally just drive to somewhere else so like they can't stop me. Maybe someday the Golden Bus will come to CFUV. Part of the ghost story is that its ultimate destination has to be the Yukon. It has to make it there one day. So I think like I don't know how many years down the road that is or how many repairs. Maybe on that track see if we can get over the island first. That would be good. Okay. Well thanks a lot. Thanks Ray. It was really great to talk to Jenny at Hillside Festival and cool to hear about the Golden Bus and how she's found a way to have a mobile venue. It seems like recording music and performing music are similar because you're always trying to find a way to make it happen when it's not bringing in so much money. My next guests are LOL, an electronic duo based out of Toronto who've been making music together for over 20 years. Their names are Rosina Katzi and Nicholas Murray. I met up with them at their home in their community space, Unit 2. They released their album Find Safety on Coax Records. This is their song by the same name, Find Safety. Towards the heights, snow. 
Do you, can you recall your very first experience of recording music and then maybe presenting it to people and how that went and the format or mm. when it was? I can recall. Um, unless you want to go first. You go first. No, you go. Uh, my first recordings were in my brother's studio because my brother's also a musician and he would go to work up here at Lady Courier during the daytime and we would sneak into his room with all his all my friends and we would make these songs on his six-track recorder. And that was my first recording experience. Did you end up making like copies of those recordings? And No, it went on to form my first production company or production group, uh, The Grassroots. That was the beginning. We were in a group called Ward Jerome. Um, and then that transformed into a production, like three people together doing, producing rap music. That was the beginnings of it. I think for me, the biggest thrill of life and still is the biggest thrill of life, was to actually take a record and loop it. That, more so than recording vocals, but like just the idea of making something repeat. Because previous to using a sampler, I would be repeating things using tape decks. And um, yeah, so for me, samplers were the most beautiful thing ever, still are. The one that I remember the best was, hanging out, I was hanging out with him before we uh, got together and I, I had bought an ASR-10. Uh, which is a sampler, and my plan was to buy it so that all these hip hop guys would come over and make beats for me, but that didn't work. So I just started doing it myself, <laughs> <laughs> um, and just by watching, I think Nick and his his crew, I just started doing it myself. And then I basically, because I wasn't very, I'm not very good at technology, I just used my headphones to record a vocal, and then I gave it, I put it on a tape, and I gave it to our friend Moonstar, and he really liked it. <laughs> So he put it out uh, on our first record label. They were on public transit recordings when they first started on a mix collection. And that was actually like, oh, this is, that's cool. And it was really shitty, but people really liked it, so. Rose used to do these really strange things. I remember we used to work together at a, if I could jump in there. Sure, I know what I'm talking about. We, we used to work at a record store together and she would constantly come in and play me her demos. But it would be like these rap songs, like the Peanuts or something, or some rapper group or whatever, full on rap song. And then she'd be singing on top of the rap song and be like, this is my new song, check it out. And I'd be like, well, you're singing on top of a rap song. I can't really hear your song, like the guy's rapping right now. Like it was really strange. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was really <laughs> weird. It was a whole time period you went through where you just wanted to sing on the beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that time that had rap vocals. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people that I know, especially like you grew up around, say, if you were too timid or weren't like encouraged to sing, you would just sing on top of like a song. Yeah. And yeah. hip hop, because there wasn't a lot of melodic, vocal melodic stuff, like it was easier to create your own melodies for me versus like singing on top of a Whitney Houston song. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would like to hear you do that. <laughs> What's changed over the years for Not you? Much, actually. In terms of like the processes or like the... Um, yeah, the processes and like how you feel once a recording is done, I mean... I think, I think it's still, I mean for us it's still, I don't know how Rose feels about this, but it still pretty much lies in that same format of like the loop, the, the perfect beat, like the idea of finding the perfect beat, if you will, um, of getting that section that sounds amazing that we could just base a whole song on. Um, it's, the technology's gotten a lot more specific and more fine-tuned and we're able to be exact about how that thing sounds, but in general it's still... Sometimes it's, it's, we have so much option now that we lose the point right. after a while. So the first thing that we started with, with 
there was a vibe there. And then, you know, three yeah. months later, it's like, oh, we lost the vibe because we tried to. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like within, I, I think with Rosina, when I do work with Rosina on stuff, I'm still in the mode of like within the first two seconds of hearing the loop, what the energy in the room is and how it fills the room and like what that is, like just building from that to like when it comes out, it's like, like you're either in it or you're like, uh, this is taking me a while to get into or like what that effect is, is that we still play with that. We so you still, still can kind of tell pretty fast if it's going to work. Yeah. Very, very I fast. can tell really fast. Yeah. I have to really like, and I'm at that point now where if I'm instinctually, if I'm not like feeling whatever he's done, um, I can write to anything, but I actually have to be excited by this to know that I'll write a better song. Yeah. I'll just be like, don't, I don't want this, do this to else. My ego has gotten to a place now where I can kind of like be like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe it sucks. Yeah. Well, it's not yeah. that it sucks, it's just I'm not excited. When I hear something, else, I can write really right. easily. And also the thing is, if you're not excited at the beginning, you're not going to be excited when you have to sing it thousands and thousands yeah. of times yeah. and, exactly. like, and play the beat yeah. thousands yeah. and thousands of times. That's, that's the whole exactly. You have to create something yeah. that won't disturb you later. Anyway, it's been really good to talk to you about it. Yeah. And yeah, good luck with your next record recording it. I really liked how Rosina and Nick talked about how the thrill of the recording or the feeling you're after doesn't really change much over time, even if your methods of getting there do. Jeff Berner is a Vancouver-based accordion-playing singer-songwriter. He's released seven solo albums and tours internationally. Two of his albums have been released on Coke's records. This is the song, The Ghost of Terry Fox is Looking Down on Me Tonight, off of his album Canadiana Grotesquica. Twinkling at me, winking at me, because they know. When I was young, I tried to fly on board wings. I just didn't fit those things. I belong below. Standing on the pole. And the slugs I'll say It's too bad But anyway The ghost of Terry Fox Is looking down on me tonight I tried to redeem myself Instead it seems I just read myself
be true But what's a man supposed to do? How is he supposed to win the fight? And everyone can clearly see I'll never be the man I tried to be The ghost of Terry Fox looking down on me What was the very first time you recorded music? Uh, I had a band for almost 10 years called Terror of Tiny Town. They were an eclectic, punky band. I was the main songwriter and singer. And uh, we were teenagers. And we, wanted, we knew that we were fated for international rock stardom. There was no, there was no like worries about it. So... <laughs> And we, and we had read all the music magazines, so we knew precisely how it was going to work. And we just followed the dictums of the of the magazines, and uh, and you know we figured, how can we go wrong? This is how it works. <laughs> so when do you remember? Like, did you go to a recording studio the first time? We would record practices with a tape recorder thing, okay. you know, and then. And those sounded amazing to us. We thought <laughs> it was already pretty much there. But uh, then we did, uh, we did, someone bought a four track and we did some things on that. And we, but it wasn't very long before we went into somebody's dad's like hobby studio or something that would have had like a DAT machine or something. No, like what was your very first release that you sold, had a release show? I think we made copies of our four track recording demo. And that was that the idea, it was a cassette and it would have had two songs on either side and there was a reproduction company in in Vancouver you could just you could just have tapes made of whatever length and uh, this was the first thing would have been like a, a recording of our four track transferred to cassette and uh, we thought that was pretty amazing we were pleased with it uh, at every step of the way like and and we we really met our sincere thought was that once a&R people and other gatekeepers of the industry got a load of it, they would be knocking down our door to get some more, you know? <laughs> that was that was totally our, our attitude. So did you ever release, like, full-length records with Terror of Tiny Town? Yes, we did. We did. Uh, we, we made um, many recordings. Uh, we used that demo to get into a battle of the bands that Fox, the rock radio station, hosted which we came third in. We gratefully, somewhat gratefully, accepted the free equipment that we won and 20 or 40 hours at Mushroom Studios. We, we went into the best studio maybe in the country and 
all the gold records were there and we just we envisioned the spot where that ours would be and the board was legendary and the room was legendary for drum sounds mm -hmm. and uh but i really i thought great this is natural i didn't really care that much about the difference in quality between the four track and the greatest studio in Canada at the time because my ears were completely untrained and I couldn't really, I could barely hear the difference. What does like making an album and putting it out into the world to you mean now, like versus then? It's remarkably similar in a lot of ways. I mean, for one thing, the last two records we recorded at Afterlife, uh, which is now in, you know, headquartered in the building of my, where Mushroom Studios was. We used <laughs> the same drum room, and like, I don't know if it's the same board, but there, uh, like, Afterlife is Mushroom Studios, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it was like, uh, great to do that. It um, must be kind of surreal too, though. You're like, yeah, it's the same studio. Here we are, you yeah. know? I mean, I think a big part of starting Cokes is like, I know that there is a side of the music industry that's really changed since you know, even I put my first EP out or like around when I met you in 2001, like a lot has changed about, you know, how you sell music and physical copies. I think part of keeping the music coming out in a physical format is that it, you know, it can go, not every station has access to their own digital library yet. And I think actually releasing music and having it available for people to order is still really important. Yeah, I think that uh, it has to do with uh... The, the recording process and putting out the records is has to do with ritual and uh, and fetishization of objects. You know, like we're like it's just not the same to just have somebody's song pumped into your house as if you possess an object with their picture on it or with a picture that they've that they have deemed correct go with the music and mm -hmm. stuff like that and yeah. you're holding it while you're listening to it you know if it's finally get up and yeah. flip it and stuff like that there's yeah. like there's a ritual to that and mm -hmm. then also the recording studio i'm i for my process or whatever you want to call it that gives like me and the people i'm going to play with uh like a deadline and it's expensive to do it there's the side of in fact, the sound is very good, but the other thing is like, because the clock is ticking, you've got to, you can't fuss about. You have to make decisions so that it's done. And when it's done, it's done, and you move on to the next project. Jeff definitely talked about my experience. I think when I was younger, I didn't understand the music industry as well. And I thought that the DIY component of what I was doing was a means to an end. Uh, but because of how things have changed, it's actually a really valuable tool to be able to do most things yourself. I've also recorded in larger studios, and it does help to be scared of, you know, the amount of money you're spending per time. There's still a quality level of recordings from studios that have millions of dollars worth of gear. And so for some forms of music and some artists, it makes sense to try and access funds or save up as much money as you can to make an album in a place like Mushroom Studios. Tiffany Eilick and Grayson Grit make up Yellowknife band Quantum Tangle. Their performances are a combination of songwriting, blues guitar playing, storytelling, and throat singing. I met up with them at Gray's family camp near Sudbury to talk. 
they released their latest album, Shelter As We Go, on Coax Records, and this is their song off of that album called Freeze, Melt, Boil. What have you seen in your short, long life? Where did your tiny feet roam? All the things you have done on top of being a wife, a mother, a daughter, a home. What have you seen in your short, long life? What has your heart overcome? The traditional ways that are hidden away can be revived by the beat of a drum. What have you seen in your short, long life? What did those tiny hands do? Those tiny hands stretching, scraping, fixing, and making, mending the skins that our souls fit within. Stitching, nothing can undo What did those tiny hands do? What have you seen in your short, long life? What has your heart overcome? The traditional ways that are hidden away Can be revived by the beat of a drum Short, long life, witness to so many wrongs. Relocation, damnation, misinformation, summation, our nation still strong. What have you heard in your short, long life? When did they silence your voice? The stories they spun made you swallow your tongue, made you feel like it was your choice. The two of you are in a band now, but I think you started music separately. So maybe you could take turns telling me about like the very first like recording you ever made and then presented to people. Oh, the very first recording I ever made, I was in high school and I was recording my my own songs that I was writing and I basically got a don't tell anyone, I got a pirated copy of Cool Edit Pro 2.0 <laughs> from uh I think one of my teachers actually. <laughs> so got a got a pirated copy of that and a karaoke mic with an adapter to a one eighth inch like 
uh, plug and plugged it in the microphone part of the my parents' desktop computer in the computer room. <laughs> and I just played around with it and figured out how to record like track by track. And I recorded a EP. I can't remember if it had a name or not. I don't remember. But in any case, and it was all like... Um, I really so desperately wanted to be like a punk rocker, play like rock and roll, but everything that came out was like alternative country, folk, sad <laughs> music. So everything would come out like, um, rem- kind of like a spin off of like uh, Dashboard Confessional esque kind of mm-hmm. um, folk t- folk tunes that were like emo and awesome. Like I still love them, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I put kind of put a CD out that way and like did the album art myself and like cut it out and put mm-hmm. it all together and I recorded a lot of them in high school but I released them when I moved to Sudbury and literally like uh, a, f- a fella in Sudbury his name was Sean Pepin he was having a CD release of his own too and he knew that I was working on something and so he walked in to Books and Beans which is now the speakeasy in Sudbury and he walked in and he had all these cards to give out he's like here you go here's your ticket you're doing your CD release with me and it was already printed and everything. He didn't even ask. He was just like, <laughs> we're doing it. And I was like, okay. So we had a CD release at Innovative Guitar Ideas. And I didn't know anything about CD releases. I just loved writing songs and mm-hmm. especially performing. I right. loved, I'd performed a lot, but I'd never really like put anything out mm-hmm. up, up to that point. Um, well, I came across music kind of by accident. Um, mostly I've up until this point have been a, a performer um, I'm mostly a live performer in like theater productions as a stage actor and uh, worked as a dancer also and a storyteller and so lots of the mediums that I've been involved in have been live and there's no there's a certain beauty to that that there's no recording and there's no evidence of things <laughs> gone wrong <laughs> um, so all of the all of the singing and the music that I did was either sort of as a dancer who might dabble in music or as a, um, you know, like musical theater or as a, as a, um, an actor or performer who, who would sing as a character. In terms of like my own voice, I didn't really start to understand what that was even until, you know, because I had always sung in context of I'm portraying something else. Like this isn't Tiffany singing. This is so and so in a character. And this is what they're going as. And this is how they sing. So I w- had a very sort of um, like virtuosic voice, where I could like change it and be play characters, and was like a really strong character singer. But I didn't really ever consider myself a singer or a songwriter for that matter. And so when Gray and I first got together. Um, and we, we started working on this project, um, in Yellowknife and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm the throat singer in the band and, you know, Gray is the singer songwriter cause Gray's been at it for a million years. <laughs> Clear delineation. I don't play an instrument. I, I, we, we didn't even have our pedal system that we have now. So I was, I was just providing vocals and Gray <laughs> had the guitar, all of the pedals, everything. I was like, I will just throat singing to this weird mic thing and <laughs> go from there. So, um, and so I, I didn't ever really feel like I had a great voice as like Tiffany. I like, I know I had a very expressive voice and didn't even have a lot of things recorded. I did record one little, um, lullaby once for, mm-hmm. For, for a kid, and, and that was kind of my only thing I'd ever really recorded and had evidence of, <laughs> because everything that I had done up until this point has been live. 
and then I, we just kind of got into songwriting by accident because um, because even when Quantum Tangle first got started, we were like a storytelling band. We did a lot more storytelling. Um, any of the vocalizations that I provided were um, mood music or harmony. So yeah, I kind of came to songwriting and, and singing a little bit through through the theatrical world and, and it, mm -hmm. I've always just wanted to be an actor and a performer that way. So this has been cool that it translated well. Your first album was Quantum Tangles, first album. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of joke about <laughs> Tiffany, like, <laughs> of like, hi, I'm Tiffany Eilich. I tried songwriting once and I got a Juno. <laughs> like, just, like, I don't, you know, it's like that tra transferable skills kind of thing. Like, totally. you've just put so much time. Nothing was wasted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> None of that education yeah, was wasted. Just thinking about the structure and also engaging audiences. Well, I, I really like that um, the like ritual of getting music and like opening it up and looking through it like I'm really like a tactile visual person and, and I you know it's the same with like oh well, we don't need to buy books anymore we can just put them all on our kindle like you know true you're still gonna get that information but part of the experience is different and um, especially when people who've seen us live because it's a very different experience, I think, than when you know you hear us. Because you know, I'm I'm a weirdo and I'm super physical and and like dance around and scare kids as part of the show. It's nice to have the CD as a reminder. I think that seeing live music is so important and just live shows too, because there's 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 a total connection between you know there's no barrier and there's no like technological barrier in between. And you know. Same with film, like watching a film is great, but it's always going to be the exact same thing. And, and you know, there's no, there's no listening involved on the performer's parts because their job is done and it's printed and blah, blah, blah. But me and Gray have had so many is instances where we're really connected as performers and then like a gift from the gods will happen and then we can go off on a bit of a tangent or, you know, just mm. so much more interesting. It's much more dynamic to do it live. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's why people still go to see live music is for those surprises yeah and the engagement of yeah of course and we're you know we're super visual beings too and no one says like oh i'm going to go to this concert they're not like i'm gonna go listen i'm gonna go hear britney spears like insert your favorite band they're like i'm gonna go see them and that makes a lot of sense and um you know the, the great thing about an album is that you can you can build it up as as large as you want because when people are listening to it you're you're kind of only you're working with one sense kind of thing or like maybe a couple right of like of hearing and of uh, feeling that in your body but you're not seeing anything so it's like yeah load on the dobro ro load on a bunch yeah, of put moves, on the do effects, all this stuff make it big and make it a part of someone's day when they're in their car it's kind of your soundtrack for drive or for whatever experience you're going through and i think um you know, for me anyways, there, there is something really great about like, I'm going to grab this CD and put it in my car and listen to it. Like, I just, I love that. Instead of, you know, even in my, in my truck, I have like a USB, like I put in my own stereo and there's like a USB thing, but I just didn't like it because it would organize my files in a way that I didn't want it to be organized. I want to <laughs> listen from my album from beginning to end in a way that was intended for me to hear it. I think that's a great thing about a CD or even, 
you know, vinyl. You put it on <laughs> or cassette. You put it on and you're listening to it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason why it's in that order. Because that's mm-hmm. part of the storytelling, too. That's the journey in, that's you intention. go on. We also yeah. locked yeah. your dad, Guy, out. So we got to let Guy back in, though. Yes. <laughs> He's, like, somewhere. We're like, you he can't come He was walking in. up to the patio door, yeah. and you were talking, and I just shook my head, no. Yeah. Shoot. And he just slowly walked back, like, yeah. oh, no. So. <laughs> like a cartoon. Okay, we're going to go let Guy back in now. Gray went to audio engineering school and is the studio engineer for Quantum Tangle's albums. That's another way that you can get around expensive studios is learning how to run the equipment yourself and make studio level recordings. I think anyone can build up from where they are to that point. It was great to get to hear all the stories from folks. Recording in a studio can be expensive, but each of the bands found their own way to start recording and work their way towards the albums they make today. It makes me think that the best way to get musicians to start recording is to make equipment accessible. There are all kinds of programs I've heard of, like the Downtown Edmonton Public Library, where people can rent studio spaces to record. If you have an idea for helping connect people with recording technology in your town, you should go for it and try to set it up. If you have the means to record and a friend wants to borrow a mini recorder or a mic from you, maybe take the time to show them how it works. It reminds me to keep sharing the things I've learned from making my recordings. All kinds of things grow to the moment a person does their very first recording. I'd like to thank all of the guests on my show. Jenny Mitchell from Bird City, Rosina Katzi and Nicholas Murray from LOL, Tiffany Eilick and Grayson Grit from Quantum Tangle, and Jeff Berner. Also a big thanks to executive producer Katie Sage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to Artscape and leave a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Artscape has been made possible with the generous support from the BC Arts Council. The songs you heard on this show are It Fell by Bird City, Find Safety by Lol. The Ghost of Terry Fox is Looking Down on Me Tonight by Jeff Berner. Freeze, Melt, Boil by Quantum Tangle. And Where Two Rivers Meet by Clyde Peterson and Ray Spoon. You can find out more about all of the releases and artists on Coax Records at www.coaxrecords.com. And you can find out more about me, your host, Ray Spoon, at rayspoon.com.